the Pink Smoke Podcast with co-hosts John Cribs and Chris Funderburg. What we we actually have triple Funderbergs here today. We got one, two, three. This is a very special episode where we are being joined by. Well, uh, Chris, I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce our guests. We're being joined by my mom and my dad, Mr. Isaac Murray Funderburg III, is right here on my left, and Judy Ann Cooper Funderburg, the one and only, the first is here on my right, making faces at her dislike of my introduction already. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, and I wanted to do an episode, we've been talking about doing this for a while. Um, I wanted to have them on because it's their 50th wedding anniversary on May 29th. Yes. Yes, whatever she said. <laughs> yes. On May 29th. That's my yeah. mother's birthday. Really? Yeah. Is she turning 50? Can we tie it in somehow? Somewhere in the late 30s, I believe, is where she's at. Um, but my understanding has always been the story I've always been told by my parents of how they met was at a party and they struck up a conversation about The Graduate, which was both of their favorite movie at the time, maybe uh, or one of their favorite movies, but essentially the film The Graduate brought them together. And for their 50th wedding anniversary, I wanted to have them on talking about the movie, talking about what the movie meant to me as a young cinephile, what they've meant to me and all of that. And it became um, uh, doubly important for me to do just to keep our, our listeners, especially our Patreon subscribers up to date I had a really serious health event about a month and a half ago where I had a blood clot in my leg uh, stretching from my pelvis down to my ankle, which a lot of it broke free. And then I had pulmonary emboli in my lungs. I had looked like buckshot apparently in my lungs of blood clots in my lungs. And so, you know, if you'll just indulge us for this episode, this is a, this is a doing it because I met a heavy moment in my life and I just wanted to talk to the people uh, that really mattered to me about something that mattered to them. And, uh, you know, I sort of, this will be a shorter episode than most because I, I run out of energy still. I'm still uh, recovering. That's actually why I'm here with my parents right now is they're taking, taking care of me as I'm not really fully functional yet myself. But um, that's why we're doing this to give to give the preamble to it. And uh, I'm already like getting emotional and choked up. It's weird. Well, my medication affects me. <laughs> I don't have that excuse. I so set the scene. Am I getting the story right? Is the question is where, where were you guys living? This is 1970 when you guys met the film came yes. out in 67. Tell me, tell me, where were you? What was it? Okay. Well, uh, it was the 4th of July and we um, were in Nashville, Tennessee. Murray was a student at Vanderbilt University. I was out of school and was working at the um, Methodist Publishing House as an um, 
I think at that point I was like a production assistant. And you had gone, to, you had you had gone to school at University of Kentucky. Did you move to Nashville specifically to work at the Methodist Publishing House? Yes, or because I, you love the honky tonk so much. No, uh, actually, uh, I moved there to take a job at the Methodist Publishing House. My family is—I'm uh, from a, a long line of Methodists, and. Um, Methodist Sunday school teachers. I know the, the and, dead milkmen have a song called Methodist coloring book. That's very hard on the Methodist. And I was listening to it once and it's like one of the only times I've seen you angry. <laughs> but, um, so this was a party. I think it was the 4th of July. It was definitely in July. It was an after play party. What happened? May I? That that's okay. That that summer, this one of the uh, graduate students at Vanderbilt wrote a play about the Chicago Seven, and uh, I'd been I I I had really uh, uh, enjoyed working in the theater as an engineer, and um, so he asked me to design the set for his play. Plus, I was the only one that would use a hammer. None of the uh, none of the uh, talent wanted to injure their fingers hammering, so I got to I got to build the set. And to and to to be clear, even though Vanderbilt is the Harvard of the South, it is yes. not full of engineers. It's not known as an engineering school. And well, that's it's known true. as full of delicate-handed lawyer doctor types, no calloused fingers. Theologians. 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 Don't forget Al Gore. <laughs> Al Gore went to theology school. And Joe Bob Briggs. Joe Bob, the great Joe Bob Briggs went to Vanderbilt at virtually the same time as you. Yeah, he, uh, he was way too cool for me is my guess. <laughs> so yeah. you took up the hammer and you're building the, the judge's bench and the, the jury section and everything that uh, for the courtroom scenes? Yeah, this was for summer, this was for summer stock, if you will, too, so that, um, Anyway, <laughs> so we I had the, actually seen the play. Yeah, you went to the play. I, I did not know you, but I had actually yeah. seen seen the play. Yeah. In, in your estimation, how were the sets on a scale of one to ten? Ten being great, one being dad level approach to art. I'll take three. I think they were very authentic for a, a courtroom. May, maybe um, building something that looks like a courtroom is not the most challenging set design, but. <laughs> Very much worked. We got they're, we got Pauline Kale coming in here with the faint praise. <laughs> no, no. This is summer stock. Keep in mind. <laughs> this, they definitely worked. So the party itself was—I uh, do not remember the woman's name—but it was someone's house, and she lived on Love Circle. Oh, how perfect! They, they met okay. on Love Circle. Yeah, Love Circle is uh, a hill. Uh, a few blocks from Vanderbilt and, mm -hmm. and the uh, road, of course, winds up the hill. So it's called Love Circle. Yes. Do you remember her name? Uh, I do believe I do, but I'm, I'm going to decline to say it. I will say that the reason uh, that I was at the party was because this was an after play party. So it was a cast party and production party. And so this would have been, this was the only time that I was really ever involved with socially uh, with the, uh, with the drama folks. And uh, Anne showed up with your, didn't you show up with Susan? Yeah, I had nothing to do with Vanderbilt or with the play, but my roommate. Um, and you're older. So you were like the 24 year old hanging out at the college party. 
Well, I just gotten out of graduate school, you oh, know, okay. but I, yes, I was older. Yeah. I think I was 23 at that point. Crashing parties and boozing. I can picture it perfectly. Do I have the wrong impression of what your youth was? <laughs> she was, she was arrayed on a shade, on one of those lawn chairs, the, the, the long lawn chairs. Oh. I don't know. Okay. And she was out in the gravel. Uh, there, uh, there was like a gravel patio and she was she was ensconced on this chair and and arrayed there and she looked like a girl that I had gone and to, to, with an English class and so I went over and said hey uh, I, I think I know you and uh, turned out we did the classic this one worked on you mom well that what is a stinker <laughs> to you and that guy's got whiskers <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I probably I was I would have been doomed, but I said, "Hi, my name's Murray." Oh, I guess where she's from. It's true. I grew up in Murray, Kentucky. So, um, ah. so now that you mention it, I do remember. I I knew so the that's part. the reason I exist. Yes, Look how absurd that is. <laughs> I uh, do remember the party was outside and. Um, Yes, there was a gravel patio and Nashville is hot and humid in the, in July. So I almost didn't go to the party. I, at the very last minute, Susan had been saying, let's go with me. And at the very last minute I said, okay. So I often think of how fortunate it was that I did at the last minute. Mm -hmm. Change your mind. Change my mind. So you go. guys started talking about the graduate. Now, when I was younger, I misunderstood this story. And I had thought you had made a date to go see the graduate. For a long time, that's what I thought the story was. No, there was a very logical reason why we started talking about the graduate. Because at that time, Murray was um, majoring. I can guess. <laughs> in material science. And <laughs> the plastics. plastics. And he said he was specializing in plastics. So that was what got us started with the graduate. And I did recently read the book of the graduate. And that line is not in the book. Interesting. I was, I was surprised, yeah. There are lots of things from the book that uh, are, I assumed were written for the movie. You know, were like very Buck Henry-esque, like uh, you're the most attractive of my uh, my parents' friends and the toothbrush that he, you know, uses to, uh, as the, the reason to go into the hotel. But plastics, I would have sworn, must have come from the book because it's so famous, you know, but yeah. you're right. That's it's completely original to the, to the script. It's, it's like the thing everybody remembers from yeah. the movie too. Mr. McGuire. Am I getting it right that it was, in fact, both of your favorite movies, or was it just a movie you guys liked a lot? It was certainly a movie that I liked a lot. I don't know what I would have said uh, was my favorite movie at that time, but I certainly uh, enjoyed it, liked it. Well, uh, well, for me, it was uh, because I was uh, 20 years old, uh, at this time, and I kind of felt a lot like like the Benjamin because I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I had no idea what the world was like. And you had there. gone, you had grown up on Lookout Mountain. You had gone to a very prestigious military high school. You were going to a prestigious college. You were. Did you feel that kind of pressure to do something? I mean, it's so funny though, knowing Fundy 
like Fundy's not going to say, hey, too much lounging in the pool, Murray, get to work. Fundy's my grandfather, Isaac Murray Funderburg Jr. He's, he's definitely somebody who would, would tool around in a sports car and golf and he raced cars when stock cars when he was younger and stuff like that that was cool uh, i am kind of the polar opposite of my father he's he was athletic and very personable and the only trait i got is i do like people a lot so i like to talk to them well your yeah. mother was a very social person too she yeah. anywhere you went with a lane if there was a line of people and you were having to stand to wait she's knew everybody in the line after about five minutes yeah yeah <laughs> so it's and how many affairs with uh your father's business partners wives that you had at that point mom that question's for you <laughs> <laughs> whoever wants to feel that whoever wants to feel that <laughs> that was interesting because I, I was dating but i i am really if you look up engine uh nerd engineer i'm in that's my picture in that dictionary <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this anymore. I've lost the, my okay. line of thought. I was going to say, you know, this movie, I had a funny relationship to the first time I ever heard of this movie and heard this story. Do you remember why you told me this story for the first time and how I first heard of it, Mom? Was it when we were in Nashville? No, we went and saw Wayne's World 2 in 1993 <laughs> when I was 14 years old. And those of you who have not seen Wayne's World 2 recently ends with an extended graduate parody, like 20 minutes worth of parody of it to a point where when I was watching this time, I was thinking of how exacting this Wayne's World 2 parody is, including the joke about the mechanic who delivers the bad line, so they have him replaced by Charlton Heston. And that guy really does deliver the line terribly in this movie. It is, it is a strikingly strange observation. But you told this whole story about, about meeting a dad and talking about the graduate and all of that and, and plastics. And so this was like right around the time when I was first starting to get into movies. And shortly after we talked about that, it was showing on PBS. And, but at like 11 o'clock at night, and you let me stay up. I was allowed to stay up as late as I wanted. I just had to turn the TV off at eight o'clock, right? But you said you can watch this on a school night, The Graduate, because we had talked about. And so I stayed up very late and watched The Graduate one night. And it was interesting. It was the first letterbox movie I ever saw. So I watched it and I'll always remember that opening where he's on the escalator because I spent that whole shot going, what are these black bars on the screen? Like what is happening right here? I don't get what I'm looking at. Like that shot was seared in my memory. And this is pre-internet era. So there was no way to look it up. I was just looking at it going, what am I seeing? What is that doing? And then like had to research it. But that was like one of the first real serious movies I ever saw. It was one of the first movies that wasn't for kids. One of the first movies I saw that wasn't for kids. Um, and so I always really associated with you. I've got to say, I have not, I watched it again today in preparation for doing this podcast. I have not watched it in the interim. I watched it when I was 14, 15 years old, and then I watched it again now. And when I first saw it, I did not get it at all. I did not understand it at all. Um, and I was just wondering, 
to put it in the context for you guys, what, what was your relationship to it? That was clearly a movie that resonated with young people in some way, but, but it feels strange to me when I watch it now. Did you, I get, I understand now that you said it, how you identified with Benjamin Braddock. Somewhat, yes. and But it's, it still seems strange to me that this is a movie that resonated with, with you guys, especially knowing dad, how you're really into science fiction, that's your main thing. And mom, I just associate you with more like, I don't know, like classic American literature. You know, that's what I really think of when I think of what you like. Well, The Graduate, you know, was the quintessential 60s movie. I mean, Benjamin Braddock, is that his name, Benjamin yeah. Braddock? Not to Here. be confused with Braddock from Mission in Action. He was the 60s college kid. He was having an identity crisis. He was uh, alienated from his parents. Uh, he, you know, had the communication gap, the generation gap, the oh, don't trust anybody over 30. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? That was just so 60s. If you had, you know, uh, I don't think he necessarily had to be in college to feel that way, but certainly most, uh, lots of college students felt that way. And um, I happened to be, I was a teaching assistant when it first came out, and um, the a freshman in, in the English classes, they wanted to talk about it, they wanted to write about it. They really identified with Benjamin and, and felt a lot of the same things that Benjamin was feeling. Yeah. That's so interesting to hear. You know, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading Mark Harris's new biography of Mike Nichols and the chapter on the, the graduate is really interesting because apparently they didn't know what they had with this movie. They were shocked that it had this appeal to the youth audience. They thought they were making kind of like a, a sex comedy for you know the older people and there's even that scene that has no uh, equivalent in the book where they go to the where elaine and ben go to get the burgers and the the, the people next to the, the, yeah. their neighbors are, are the listen, to that rock, that rock, listen to that rock and simon and garfunkel music that the young kids listen to and they roll up their windows and close the hood you know like they they want to completely isolate themselves even from that youth culture and you can see how that really wasn't maybe the intention of going into the movie, but you're right. It has that appeal. Obviously, you know, people saw in the, in Benjamin Braddock, like a certain sort of isolation and a disillusionment that I think, you know, it's what interesting that that ended up being the take. For most oh, people. sorry. What surprised me today looking it up is I didn't realize it was the highest grossing movie of 1967. Huge. And by like a wide margin, like basically. It was like the third biggest uh, movie of all time at that point. Yeah, and it's and only Jungle Book is nearby. Sorry, what were you going to say? Charles Webb, the fellow who wrote The Graduate, was paid twenty thousand dollars for the movie Jesus. rights. Well, I'm sure they did the right thing and gave him a cut of the profits. Uh, they gave him an extra ten thousand dollars when the movie came out. Oh, there and, you go. But he was he was a hippie. He he did he was not interested in money, and he actually uh, donated the publication rights 
to the Anti-Defamation League. Oh. Huh. And then he he was already married when the movie came out, and he and his wife bought um, a Volkswagen van, van and toured around the country uh, visiting parks and nudist colonies. Gross. I can't think of a better way to... <laughs> <laughs> You know what I was looking at, though, uh, with the uh, the box office of it, the only movie that could really compete with it that year and that it seems like might have made as much money, although it's really hard to find it, is there was a 70 millimeter release of Gone with the Wind, right, that was massive. Uh, for comparison, The Graduate was not number one at the box office in any given week in 67. But Gone with the Wind was number one from November 1st to December 26th at the box office. Gone with the Wind being the highest grossing movie at that point. Yeah, and this, and it seems like in this year it might have made as much money. It depends on, there's not clear breakdowns of foreign and domestic. I'm willing to bet almost all of Gone with the Wind's 70 millimeter money was made in the United States. I don't think France and England were contributing meaningfully to Gone (laughs) with the Wind's take. which is crazy because it's such the complete opposite of this movie in every single way. Did you guys go see The Gone with the Wind when it was re-released? I did, and it was the first time I had ever seen it. I don't think it had ever been on TV. If it had, I missed it. I, I did, um, just because, you know, I heard about it my whole life. Yeah. And, and um, from the South, I mean, Gone with the Wind would have been... Yeah. The thing our parents related to, well, not necessarily related to, but certainly similar. Yeah, I'm picturing yeah. Fundy giving a shit about that movie. It's impossible. <laughs> but no. Elaine loved it. Elaine, oh, yeah. Elaine, my, Elaine had seen and, it. And my grandmother loved it. Yes, so, and yeah, I'm willing to bet Frank and Gleason took all the, the girls to see it, certainly, right? Yeah, he probably, yeah. When, uh, yes, probably. But he was a Yankee from New Hampshire. Oh, and so I, I don't know how he was not, he wasn't enthusiastic about the Southern heritage. He was, he was a carpetbagger. He was a carpetbagger, but he was, a, he was a good one. He turned into a lawyer and were play, you know, uh, World War II and all of that stuff. Yes. This is my great grandfather who was one of the lawyers who oversaw the excavation of our turf, which was one of the first concentration camps discovered. And he was a lawyer at Nuremberg. I get the impression, actually, that's one of the scenes in Band of Brothers, right at the end, where the guy, where the lieutenant, I think, yes. rounds up the village people. To- it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Mr. Gleason. Yeah. Uh, well, we do have some photos that came from a museum in Germany that show um, Mr. Gleason at a um, like a festival or a parade that the. Uh, German villagers gave for the uh, Americans who had come and um, investigated the prison camp and so forth. And we do have one of those photos. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so all you Holocaust deniers listening to this, uh, go fuck yourselves. Um, I agree. I think the pink smoke is willing to be on the record with that. But I would imagine sort of the sentiment at the time uh, among audiences was like, I'm not going to go see this dusty old Mm. Hollywood movie. I'm going to go see The Graduate, which is the happening thing, right? The, I mean, just in terms of the way the the movie was made, it had so many radical ideas in it. 
Well, the first time I saw it, I was in uh, graduate school. It came out in December of 1967. And I was in graduate school at the um, University of Kentucky. And I went to see it. It obviously was a weekend night. It was um, at a movie theater near the university. It was full of college kids. And everybody obviously loved it. There was lots of laughing and, and audience reaction. Now, the second time I saw it was in Murray, Kentucky, this little town in Western Kentucky where I grew up. And of all people, my mother, who was this very straight-laced um, Methodist Sunday school teacher, had heard about it and had seen a spoof of it on the Bob Hope TV show. <laughs> so she wanted to go see it, and we went to see it. And uh, it was a fairly small audience. And my mother couldn't, I mean, it, it was like watching a movie about an alien space race. My mother had no uh, frame of reference for these people in, in LA and so forth. And um, apparently the other people in the theater also found it not funny because there was not a single laugh in that entire movie. Interesting. Not even when he tries to uh, take the uh, wooden hanger off and it's <laughs> no. an unstealable hanger. No, actually, <laughs> the only uh, the the toothbrush business got got a little bit of a, a reaction. Uh, it's interesting when I first watched it as a kid, I did not detect a single joke in it, right? There was like one or two things that I was like, I think that's supposed to be funny, but I did not detect any of the humor when I watched it when I was a teenager. And actually watching it this time, that reminds me of Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson owes everything to this movie would be the first thing I would say is that Wes Anderson Absolutely. doesn't have a career. But the same thing happened with Rushmore. The first time I watched Rushmore in the theater, I did not think it was funny at all. And now when I watch both of them, they're top, like stop to start funny to me. Like they're still like everything, everything is funny in this movie. Just like the way Dustin Hoffman runs up the stairs is funny. Just like it gets on a comedic frequency and makes virtually everything that happens extremely funny. It's funny. I'll just say I, this movie was hugely important to me when I was in high school just in terms of the actual filmmaking. It was hugely influential to me at the time. And I ripped it off anytime I could, uh, just the Mike Nichols direction pretty much. And having not seen it for years and watching it again, and maybe this is just because I'm referencing the book, which I just finished, the humor from the book, directly from the book, the dialogue, the just straight up funny dialogue worked so much better for me than the stuff that was added for, you know, the physicality and the, the little things like his little, mm, it was like his little nervous reaction to the Robinsons and things like that. Maybe it's just because I was unfairly comparing it to the book because the book is almost like a screenplay. I mean, it's pretty much all dialogue, very little action described, and they took everything from the book. And they, you know, they added a few things here. I mean, they might've left off a few extended scenes and whatnot, but I mean, Charles Webb wrote The Graduate. You know, I mean, I think all the things that are in the movie that they're successful all come from the book, yeah. except for plastics. He apparently uh, 
paid no attention in writing class, though, because one thing they always tell you in writing class is to avoid the ping pong dialogue, you know, and he, he has virtually no description whatsoever in this book. It's just page after page of the short dialogue. Isn't that I did get lost a few funny. times as who was talking. I did. Yes, I, yes. I that that's same one of the reasons I tell you in writing class not to use it because it gets very confusing about who's talking. Absolutely. Say, isn't that why most of the advice you get in writing class is bad? Because it tells you <laughs> don't don't write the graduate essentially. <laughs> um, oh, I would like to put out the point that I really like the graduate. I really like the graduate because of the music. It really struck me when we were watching it again, how every every Simon and Garfunkel song in there is something that I really valued. And once again, identified with, especially at, at, at my age uh, when it came out. So uh, that made the movie for me more than other things. I, I it, it he, The movie made me uncomfortable early on because I, I could empathize with Benjamin and all of these these uh, all of these adults around him and 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 being passed around from adult to adult uh, at a party or something like that tell him what you do you know that kind of stuff honey <laughs> well and your response is, was plastics plastics <laughs> yeah. there is um, some interesting trivia about the Simon and Garfunkel music um, Paul Simon agreed to write original music for the film, but he was so busy with other projects that he didn't get around to writing original music. So they were using music that had previously been recorded. But he did mention um, that he had a, a song that he had written about Eleanor Roosevelt and Joe DiMaggio called Here's to You, Mrs. Roosevelt. And that became Here's to You, Mrs. Robinson, which was the only original song. That and it's a great song. For it's, that movie. it's killer in the movie too. Mm -hmm. That song is just so good in the movie. And when, when Benjamin's whistling it before it's been played on the soundtrack is such a great little touch. There's lots of, of the, I agree with you, Dad, the use of the music in that movie. Again, Wes Anderson doesn't yeah. have a career without this movie. Oh, 100%. And I didn't realize until watching it this time, I had never thought of it, that Mrs. Robinson hadn't really been written. It hadn't been completed. So that's why we're only hearing fragments of it in the chorus and the finished version of the song that gets played on the radio. And we all know didn't come until after they were had finished the movie, because as you said, he didn't have time to, uh, to complete it, but yeah. it were, it's so effective. The kind of humming and the, uh, uh, the made up lyrics that are kind of on the spot and everything is so it's totally effective. And that sequence is amazing. Can, can, I, can I be a little bit, can I talk to you guys? I have a question for you guys that, that feels like it's going to be a little bit of negativity at the same time as this praise. Um, this movie to me, Anne Bancroft is one of my favorite actresses of all time. She's a phenomenal actress. I really think she's probably the best American actress who doesn't have the best resume. You know what I mean? Like she doesn't have a lot of great movies. She has like four, I think, uh, even though she's consistently great. To me, the Charing Cross Road, John, that's the one. You want me to go through the four of them? Graduate, Pumpkin Eater. Pumpkin Eater, yes. Miracle Worker, Charing Cross Road. And then you can throw an Elephant Man if you want. No Agnes of God? All right. 
No Agnes of God, no uh, Gorilla in Brooklyn. I know you're a big fan of Gorilla in Brooklyn. Nightfall is probably not a great movie, although it is in some ways. Um, she, when she's in the movie far less in the second half, I lose interest so much. The last half hour of this movie, I'm basically waiting for it to be over. I think that, that the half hour, first half hour where she dominates the movie is so powerhouse and she's so great. And I find her to be such an interesting, great character because of Anne Bancroft that when we switch her out for Catherine Ross, who's not much of an actress and is sort of a bit of a cipher as a screen presence in this, one of the reasons I didn't understand it when I was a kid is I kept going, wait, what? Why are they in love? This is not a real love. What is this? This is ludicrous. And then the final shot of the bus does make it go, oh, maybe this is a little ludicrous and sort of that generation's hope for the future and to be different than their parents is unfounded in some way. You know, I think the movie has that critique, but I definitely, when it moves away from Anne Bancroft, I get, I lose the movie a little. I can see you nodding on. Yes, I'm, I'm a big Anne Bancroft fan. One thing that bothered me in The Graduate and even um, first time I saw it, every time I've ever seen it, she says to him, I am an alcoholic. But there's nothing in the movie to suggest that she's an alcoholic. She walks away without her drink in that scene, which drives me crazy. Exactly. She leaves she's, her drink. She, she, she's not holding, you know, uh, holding her drinks in her hand. She's not you know, saying, well, before we go upstairs, one more martini or yeah. anything like that. And none of the other characters suggest that, that she's uh, an alcoholic. Now in the book, Mr. Braddock, Benjamin's father, says he's never liked Mrs. Robinson and that he feels, uh, essentially what he feels, says is that he feels she doesn't have a moral compass, but he does not say she is an addict or an alcoholic or anything like that that's such a telling scene in the book that's not in the movie at all it's so you know you kind of wonder like how does everyone else feel about mrs robinson and you kind of struggle to kind of make your own mind up but i think that that scene in the book shows you she's just as isolated from these people as benjamin is you know the She's just the wife of I the business partner. So, so pathetic. And when the second half of the movie makes her the villain, I hate it. I hate that it treats her like a villain. I find her to be way more sympathetic than Benjamin, who I think is basically a clod and a guy I don't like yes. at all. He is so self-centered and so selfish, and he is screwing up everybody else's life. And, you know, his parents and, and uh, Mrs. Robinson and Elaine and so forth. And he has no thought for anybody but himself. Dad, what were you going to say? You're champing at the bit, but you're more polite than the three of us. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the, uh, with the, the I am an alcoholic phrase that she uttered at the time, I thought this is a lame attempt on her part the character to try and get some sympathy from Benjamin. Like, I'm a little flawed, feel sorry for me. Yeah, I'm deeply and, neurotic, right? And, and I thought that was just a ploy. And once you said, well, as you said, when she walks away from the, from the drink, I'm going, uh, there was a character on West Wing, the guy that was the, on, on, on West Wing, the guy that was the alcoholic, the, the president's advisor, 
Martin Sheen's advisor, that crusty old gravelly guy. And he was a, a recovering alcoholic, right? Or an alcoholic. And he said, I don't understand. People can walk away from a glass that's still got liquor in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a real alcoholic is finishing that stuff off. Uh, so, yes, I, that struck me as, as t- transparently a ploy on the characters. I'm converted. I think you've done a good fact-based scene analysis. And what are your thoughts on the what are your, what are your thoughts on the latter half of the the film after we lose Mrs. Robinson? Because Elaine is a tough character to engage with or understand. I think. Yeah, I um, compare her unfavorably to Ollie McGraw, who Ollie McGraw was in two other films that I put in the same category as The Graduate because they were you know relationship movies and they were out at about the same time. And one of them is Goodbye Columbus. And the other one is um, love story, and yeah, I as I was re- as I was watching uh, the Graduate recently, I was thinking, why isn't this Ollie McGraw? <laughs> they look alike. It should have been Ollie McGraw. She seemed to have a a, a lock on this particular. It's because Bob Evans didn't produce the Graduate. That's why it's not Ollie McGraw. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing I missed when I was a kid is that the signifier of she's going to Berkeley. I think that that's the entire characterization she gets is that she's up in San Francisco. So she, you know, she's a countercultural type. That's like the entire extent to which the character is defined. But she wasn't at all. But she, yeah, she was very normal. She I agree. Was, she yeah, was, she's dating this square dude, Carl. Yeah, oh, that's her at the zoo. Did I have guys ever tell you about, you know, when I worked in that, when I was first out of college, that movie movie poster gallery, right? Yeah. Run by the really, really rich guy, this guy, Ira Resnick, who's a big uh, landowner in New York City. He owns the land that uh, Lincoln Center is built on. So like the Juilliard and the Met Opera and Film Society pay him rent, right? One of the most expensive pieces of property in the entire world. Um, I worked for him and he had in his office Elaine's portrait that prop from the movie was just sitting behind his desk. I forgot about that. Ooh. Just sitting there. And I was like, hey, from The Graduate. And he was like, no, literally, it's from The Graduate. And I was like, what? <laughs> I guess you're really rich. He also had a signed photo on his desk of him and Mickey Mantle that said, dear Ira, fuck you, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Wow. I mean, that's just the prop that sets the whole plot in motion. Exactly. Well, it was weird to sit there with it over my head and be like, Ira, are you trying to seduce me? I don't know why I said that, Ira. We're just here alone in this office all day. <laughs> that turned weird. Well, yeah. <laughs> Par for the course. <laughs> yes. Um, guys, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm hitting the wall a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you mind if we... I'm really enjoying talking with you guys about this, and I'm sorry to, to have to... Uh, to pull the plug maybe a little early, I did, I did want to say um, kind of as, as closing remarks a little bit, you know, I, not to be too sentimental, but, you know, when I was in the emergency room this last time, I've had a bunch of health problems this year that have all been unrelated, just sort of a slew of, of difficulties. And in this last one, they were coming in and like, having me fill out a temporary will and asking who my executors were and like who makes decisions about life support. And they were all like, this is standard procedure for the emergency room. And I was like, no, I've been in the emergency room five times this year. This six times, they do not do this. Like this is, this is bad what's happening to me right now, right? 
And so you're lying there, just there's nobody around. I was out of town. I wasn't in New York City where I live, just in an emergency room in an unfamiliar place by myself. And you kind of sit around and you do take stock. You do go, oh man, is this like, you know, is this curtains for me? Like, this is really bad what's happening right now. And, you know, and I was sitting there and just, just thinking about you know, my entire life and existence. And I don't think I've ever, I don't think anybody expresses this. Nobody asked to be born, but I'm really glad you guys got together and I got a chance to live and experience life and have you guys as my parents. Like I was really uh, in that moment, thankful for whatever shot I got at it. And, you know, that's what made it so important for me to do this episode too, is to just sit around and get, get it on the record that just like, I really, you know, I, I love that you guys are my parents and I, I just love that I got whatever chance I get at living life. Well, there were, before we got engaged, Anna and I were chatting about things and, uh, we decided now here's an engineer talking to a Methodist <laughs> uh, and we said, you know, um, we, th that's one of the keys to our 50 years of marriage is we, we like each other and, but we respect each other as well. And I think the respect component is really important because uh, we agreed. And I believe we said this out loud as I think we could make some pretty decent kids. <laughs> and you got halfway there. I well, yeah. One out of two wasn't bad. Uh, if your sister hears this, we got we hit a hundred percent. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm reading me as the good one. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, let that me. That wasn't just a dig at Alan. Mom, is the secret to fifty years of marriage? Is the secret marry a guy who makes a lot of money, cooks. Every meal is a great cook, does his share of the cleaning, and completely supports you as a writer in your creative pursuits. Is that, is that the secret, or is it be Anne Thunderbird and be the kind of person who deserves a man like that? What's the secret? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> great. I don't know what to do next. <laughs> um, John? I think the secret, oh. seriously... I have been asked this before um, about how do you have a long marriage? And my secret is pick your battles. I really think that's it. I think people I argue, heard you guys, argue. I heard you guys arguing over that door jam two days ago. <laughs> that's that the battle she picked. That's my life. Pick your battle. That was one. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, when you win all of the battles, Mom, you don't have to be picky. I feel like I feel like see that. I feel like Dad learned the pick your battles lesson. I feel like to the victor, you know, goes the spoils. Well, congratulations, you guys. I, 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 I underappreciated. Oh, this is how is this not appreciated? <laughs> congratulations, you guys, on breaking the cyclical, uh, you know, curse that the movie gives at the end with them on the bus. That we're all going to become unhappy people when we get married. And that's just terrific. And Chris, I think you got to find out if it was Calder, Willingham, or Buck Henry who wrote the plastics line, because he's the one you should be thanking for your existence, apparently. <laughs> Incidentally, I just recently, because I was reading, reading the, rereading the book, 
discovered that um, Charles Webb wrote a sequel to The Graduate, and I have uh, put a hold on it at the library. So. Oh, actually published it, really? Yeah, but oh, not, not until I think about 2008. What's the title? Okay, the title is Homeschool because he and his wife were homeschooling the kids as they were traveling around the country in the van, staying at uh, parks and yeah, that, colonies. That movie does not need to go on one second longer than the bus scene. <laughs> no, <laughs> does no, no, not. no, that is the perfect ending. <laughs> Much as well, Buck Henry wants to sequelize it in the player. Okay, I love you guys, happy anniversary. Well, well thank, thank you, we love you and uh, we're concerned about your health, but we know you're getting better. Yeah, I, I don't need to overstate it now. I made it through the first good month. Genes. Good genes. Good genes. Good blood. Yeah. yeah, just to be clear, once you make it through the first month of it, the, the fatality rate drops to a, a uh, manageable level, I would say. It's been a tense six weeks. It has. Yeah. I mean, you know, I hope that uh, you all don't have to go through this with your kids because it's not fun. I heard you had, did you have COVID? I didn't know. I, I, uh, my coworker contracted COVID. And so I was isolated for two weeks just to be safe. Okay. I did, was not, did not get it myself. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I'm going to go lay down. Uh, my parents will continue chatting with John. Yes. Who they've just calculated. They've known 23 years. At this <laughs> Chris, point. one word, just one word. Yes. That's so. Another good Anne Bancroft movie. <laughs> Uh, I only like the ones in which she appears on screen. Is she in Fatso? Yeah, she, she's like, in oh, it. Yeah. Says, yeah, she's there. Yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. I it's no she, rat boy. I think she was on Broadway. <laughs> she was a ton on Broadway. Her early Huge career is she was dish. an ingenue who's in a bunch of crap from 52 to 57. She hated it so much. She went to Broadway for five years, became one of the premier theater actresses, and then came back to Hollywood in 62 with Miracle Worker which she had played on Broadway, obviously. Oh, my last comment on The Graduate is that it is outlandish that she did not win the Oscar, that neither her nor um, Faye Dunaway won for Bonnie and Clyde and that Katherine Hepburn won it for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. This well, is one of the great Oscar injustices. Yeah, but I mean, everybody loved Katherine Hepburn and she was getting old and, uh, you know. I know they, why they, it happens. They wanted her to have an Oscar. That's the way it goes. Well, dear, I will give you an Oscar as well. After 50 years. <laughs> Best supporting wife? Boo. Best wife I've had so far. Top, your top five wives. Yes, in the top five. In fact, you probably made the cut top three. <laughs>